Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy. Today, our topic is new directions in studying the mind. And my guest is Jean Maroney. Jean, are you there? Yes, I am here. Hi. Jean um, is also my wife, so being there means she's in the other room, but we're going to play it like she's from far away. So uh, the new the topic was sparked by a question uh, that is in the chat asking about the relation of philosophy to psychology and whether we have any new ideas about the integration of the two. And the first thing I want to talk about before we get to the really juicy stuff is the difference between philosophy and psychology. They're very closely related, but they're different disciplines. What is the difference? Uh, I'm going to ask Jean in a moment because she's a psychologist, but being a philosopher, I claim pride of place, and I'm going to give you my answer. The first thing is that the level of detail in any special science is greater than in philosophy. So, for instance, philosophy studies the universe, but physics studies the details of how physical changes occur in the universe. Psychology and philosophy both study the mind, but psychology goes into a lot more detail about how the mind works than philosophy does. Philosophy studies the fundamental principles of man existence and man's relationship to existence. And that leads to the second and I think most important difference between philosophy and psychology. Philosophy discusses what man ought to do, what he has to do in order to achieve knowledge and survival and happiness. It's a normative field. Psychology is a descriptive field. Clinical psychology applies it to the task of achieving mental health, but the basic science of theoretical psychology discusses how the mind does work, whether it works right or wrong, and what the consequences are of the past ways that you've used your mind. So philosophy wants to know how should I use my mind to gain contact with reality? That is to acquire knowledge and guide my actions. <clears throat> uh, psychology is concerned with how does the mind work? And the third uh, issue is that psychology discusses the, the uh, subconscious, the interaction of the conscious mind with the subconscious. Philosophy simply established that there is a store of memories and does not go into how it interacts in, except maybe in the broadest, broadest kind of overview. So psychology is greatly concerned with how the subconscious, which is created by or, or carried out by the brain, uh, operates. And uh, Jean, you wanted to talk about another important aspect, right, uh, 
Yes, about the relation between them in particular, which is yeah. that you know the primary means of gaining knowledge about psychology is introspection. And this is, you need philosophy to validate introspection. You need, there are certain basic introspective facts that uh, philosophy sorts out for psychology, but it's, it's a very different science. And it's, it's, it's not like, you know, philosophy is supposed to be something that a person, an educated person could understand about the world and about their situation in the world. Psychology is specialized. And the thing that I think you actually specialize in when you study psychology is your mind. And then you understand other minds by extrapolation from your mind. And uh, as just one example of how it's factual as opposed to normative, you may have made mistakes in the past and that may actually affect your psychology, but it is the facts about how your psychology is working now and how to use it now to gain knowledge of reality and to pursue your values that you are trying to understand. You aren't, uh, you, you, psychology properly, you do not judge the current state of your psychology you understand the state of your psychology and you use that to take rational action. Yeah, and this is a very different view from the view of, of practically anyone else in the world. Uh, that is, I can think of a few people who agree with this on this, but introspection is the means of knowing psychology, not surveys, not studies, not having hundreds of freshman psychology majors fill out questionnaires or engage in tests. It's the method of introspection. And the, the next question in, that we got was, how do they integrate philosophy and psychology? Well, philosophy has to recognize first that you're conscious, which a lot of philosophies do not hold the materialist philosophies. People like today, Daniel Dennett, uh, D.M. Armstrong. These people are materialists. Uh, practically all philosophers incline towards materialism, even if they're not, if they don't go a full hog on materialism. And the number of philosophers who accept the validity of introspection the second point is really small. And the third point that you really need to understand the mind of, of a human being is free will. There are virtually no philosophers who, uh, and no psychologists who accept that man has volitional control over his mind. So philosophy sets the parameters within which there can even be a science of psychology. You think I'm kidding? For 50 years, there was no science of psychology in the English speaking world. Instead, there was something called behaviorism, which proceeded from the philosophical doctrine of materialism and said consciousness is a myth. We can't put consciousness in a test tube, said uh, John James Watson, I think it was John Watson, the uh, Watson John, at the turn of the John. century was the first behaviorist. John? I'm pretty well, sure. Well, anyway, not the guy who discovered DNA, uh, <laughs> but uh, a real bad guy in the history of philosophy. And then more familiar names like B.F. Skinner, 
just totally dominated the field. And it all came out of bad philosophy. It wasn't originated by the psychologists. It was originated by a philosophic dogma that said things have to be defined operationally. And if they're not subject to the logical positivist tests for meaning, then they're no good. They're mysticism. They're, they're to be thrown out and avoided. So can I add on one item yeah, on that too, which is please. also, I mean, you kind of slipped in there that you have volitional power over your mind, but that's very uniquely objectivist. What people yes. normally say is you have volitional power over your action. And that's where a lot of these problems come from too, because of course there are situations where it's very, you, you can be driven by a motivation that, uh, feels like you don't have power over it. And that creates all kinds of confusions. What you really do have power over is your mind, what you pay attention to. And that has an indirect effect over power over your action. But that's an area of confusion that until we got Ayn Rand's view of the mind was not something we could really sort out in psychology. Yeah, that's one of Ayn Rand's really revolutionary breakthroughs is understanding that free will is your power to use your mind to set it to the task of knowing reality or to let it go to surrender it and merely react to what's coming in from the world and what comes up from your subconscious so uh, without free will you can't have any kind of decent without the recognition of free will you can't have any decent science of psychology and the objectivist psychology if you can call it that and you really can't psychology based upon the foundation of objectivism makes total uh, division of understanding things in terms of what's automatic and what's volitional, according to this theory of free will we're talking about. So um, yeah, this is tremendously different from philosophy and psychology that you'll read about and hear about. I mean, what are, what are we bombarded with? Oh, they found the gene for criminality. They found a gene for choosing Macs over PCs. I mean, that's to take it you know, to ludicrous lengths. They found a gene for finding things are based on genes. It's, it's a self-refuting doctrine, determinism, but we won't go into that here. Okay, um, so the, uh, the integration is uh, extensive and it's based upon philosophy recognizing undeniable facts about reality, which today's academics wanna deny, even though they're undeniable and they, and they can't even deny them because they'll tell you, man's not conscious, that's a mistaken idea. Idea, brother? Where'd you get such an old fashioned concept? Mistaken? You mean a mind that's out of contact with reality? Or they'll say, oh no, man is psychologically determined. Every thought he has is produced, um, uh, Sam Harris makes a big thing of this, produced by the antecedent condition. What about that thought, Sam? Was that just something produced by a brain state or by contingencies of reward and punishment? If it's not controlled by your setting an honest, active purpose of knowing the facts come what may, then it's not valid. 
So it's self-refuting. They can't even deny it. All right, but that's our, our real topic is so much juicier than this philosophic polemics. A real topic is some discoveries that Gene has made based upon a, uh, an idea of Ayn Rand's. It's in Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged. She's taken this point and developed through introspection an incredibly, incredibly powerful approach to psycho uh, yeah, psychology. So I want to read you that quote. It's um, two paragraphs, so it's a little bit longer than the average quote that's read somewhere, but I'll, I'll read it. You have never discovered that achieving life is not the equivalent of avoiding death. Joy is not the absence of pain. Intelligence is not the absence of stupidity. Light is not the absence of darkness. An entity is not the absence of a non-entity. Building is not done by abstaining from demolition. Centuries of sitting and waiting in such abstinence will not raise one single girder for you to abstain from demolishing. And now you can no longer say to me, the builder, Produce and feed us in exchange for our not destroying your production. I am answering in the name of all your victims. Perish with and in your own void. Existence is not a negation of negatives. Evil, not value, is an absence and a negation. Evil is impotent and has no power but that which we let it extort from us. Perish, because we have learned that a zero cannot hold a mortgage over life. And then the summary that leads right into what Gene is saying. You seek escape from pain. We see the achievement, we seek the achievement of happiness. You exist for the sake of avoiding punishment. We exist for the sake of earning rewards. Threats will not make us function. Fear is not our incentive. It is not death that we wish to avoid, but life that we wish to live. Close quote from Atlas Shrugged. So uh, Gene, the next big topic is Motivation by love, by values versus motivation by fear. And I would like you to speak to that. Yeah, so I think that this, what you get from Ayn Rand is that there is a fundamental difference between motivating by values versus by, by threats. And that this is, this is a life and death difference. And this comes from her understanding of the nature of value, her having validated the nature of value, reduced it to facts and reality, biological facts. And so if you're trying to understand how the human mind works and how action works and goal-directed action, you need to understand it in terms of we're biological organisms that need to gain values to live. And it turns out that's what you, the way you need to think about psychology. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion about this because if you just looked at, look at the basic emotions, like I have a categorization of basic emotions and I've got eight positive and eight negative. 
And if you just look at that, it seems like, oh, well, they're positive ones, they're negative ones. Some of them are about gaining values and some of them are about avoiding threats. Well, that's not true. If you look more closely, in fact, all of the basic emotions, uh, this is my view uh, of what this is, all of them are created fundamentally by values that you have formed in your subconscious. So here, th this is the thing that's a little new and maybe somewhat controversial. I think the right way to think about values from a psychological perspective is that they are things that have been stored in your subconscious with value significance, which means that they have the capacity to trigger emotions and they can trigger the whole range of emotions. So for example, let's take uh, an abstract value and a concrete value. The concrete value, your spouse. When you uh, look at your spouse, you feel love. If, you're, if your spouse dies, you feel sadness. If uh, you haven't seen your spouse for a while and they come, you feel joy. Uh, if someone threatens your spouse, you feel fear. If, uh, you know, that everything about, uh, if you do something, if you betray your spouse, you will feel guilt. So the spouse, which is the value, has the possibility, depending on the circumstances and the evaluation with respect to the spouse, has the capacity to generate all the positive and negative emotions. And, and it's, it's, if it's threatened, then it will be threat-based emotions. If it's uh, things that you can gain it, then it will be value-oriented emotions. Uh, and the same thing is true, say, for a career, right? If you have a central purpose, you have something that you are very excited about doing in your life, or, or say, a more mundane goal, um, you know, you will feel desire to act to gain and keep it because it's stored as a value. Uh, when you succeed, you will feel joy. If something happens that puts it into jeopardy, or it might be in jeopardy, you'll feel fear. If it is in jeopardy, you'll feel sad or uh, maybe despair if it looks like you aren't going to be able to get it. So uh, the values that you form are, in fact, the source of essentially, for a normal, uh, a normal decent person, essentially all of your emotions are caused by the values, not by the threats. Now, some of the emotions actually point your attention to the threat. So like if you, um, if uh, say you're trying to, you're a professor and you're trying to write a grant and uh, the deadline is looming and you're afraid you're not gonna make the grant, the fear is gonna direct your attention to the deadline, not the grant, but the, fe the fear is caused by your desire to get the grant, the value of the grant. So the values are the cause, even though sometimes the emotions point you toward not the value, but the threat. So that's, I think, just even having that orientation to not treat emotions as equal when they're positive and negative, but to see them all as coming out of values, that is heavily influenced by Ayn Rand. And I think that really explains a lot about psychology and how to, how to change your psychology. Uh, if if for some reason your values are not in alignment with uh, what you think is in your best interest. Uh, I just wanted to mention that the idea that uh, emotions come from values and value judgments uh, is in Aristotle quite definitely. And uh, it, the, a lot of the more serious traditional thinkers recognize that, but Ayn Rand has brought it back, amplified it, and you've added this, I mean, this point is like imp implicit in, I think, that 
beneath the threat is the value that's being threatened because fear is that kind of thing. Right. But you've really uh, developed this uh, understanding of the difference between motivation by values and motivation by the desire to avoid a threat. And yes. I want you to elaborate on that, and I can yes. do it if you're not willing. No, no, I'm willing, but I want to say one other thing that's a little bit different about the way I look at it and the way it's traditionally presented in the objectivist okay. view and in cognitive uh, psychology, which is there it's presented that it's the, it's the thought that causes the emotion. And that's true, but that's an intermediate step. It's the value that causes the thought that causes the emotion. And that's the deeper causality that I've been focusing on. Oh, so you, um, you think when you um, this, say, oh, well, that would really be terrible for me if it happened, the value that's behind that, the value that you would lose, puts that thought in your mind into awareness thought yes amplifies the emotion or causes the, thought, I'm not exactly the particular sure. kind of emotion you have depends on the thought that you have uh, or the thoughts uh, that you have because you can have multiple emotions but the thing that actually gets all of those into mind is uh the value you have to have some awareness of the value it could be very at the fringes but if you don't have some awareness of the value you will not get the thoughts that are in fact evaluations. And so it's just a, it's maybe, uh, you want to get to another really sexy thing. So shall I move on to that? Because yeah, that's kind yeah, of- Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in that. I've never heard you say that before. Well- I, I want to think about that. Okay, great. We'll talk about it later. So the thing that Harry wants me to get to is there are, I said most of the, uh, the vast majority of emotions of the normal person, normal decent person, there is another source of uh, motivation, which I call anti-values, which is unusual. And it's when Ayn Rand says you can set the system in reverse so it's causing your destruction. That's what I think creates anti-values. And so normally when you have a threat, you, uh, you decide what to do based on the values you want to get and you deal with the threat depending on the value. So if it's a very big value, you might uh, attack the threat to pr protect the value. If it's a little value, you might say, well, let me go somewhere else because I don't want to deal with that threat. The threats are not the main thing. The values are the main thing. However, you can in some situations uh, get all tangled up in that and get more focused on the threats than on the values, which is a distortion of, of life. So for example, um, uh, say, say fear of public speaking, which uh, I'm, some people, every normal person, when they go up to do public speaking, has at least some fear because there can be negative repercussions of public speaking. You could make a mistake and that would be embarrassing. Or you could, uh, you know, someone won't like what you say and that could be unpleasant. There, it, public speaking is something that actually does have some risks associated with it. And so this is, I, I was in Toastmasters for 20 years. And so I've seen many people overcome fear of public speaking. And part of what you need to do is you need to say, oh, but I really want to get the message out. So the proper way to deal with those kinds of threats and fears is say, oh, well, I want to learn how to, I, I actually want to get my message out. So let me try getting my message out where I can deal with these fears. And then you eventually get better at it and you get more comfortable with 
less familiar audiences. But if you take that fear and you treat it as, oh my God, this is just awful. I need to avoid that. I don't want to feel embarrassment. And you say, okay, well, I'm definitely not going to do any Toastmasters because I might be embarrassed. Right? And I'm definitely not going to you know, do any meeting presentations at work because I would be embarrassed. What happens is you start turning embarrassment or public speaking as like this, this bugaboo that has to be avoided at all costs. And instead of intention, instead of choosing what you're doing by seeing the values you want to gain, you're choosing what you're doing by the negative you want to avoid. And if it, if you do that enough, you actually create a structure, which I call an anti-value, which is something that just seems so awful. It needs to be avoided at all costs. And that also, that can then create emotions and it creates the same kind of emotions. But for example, instead of the normal desire you have, it would be a desire for destruction. Because if something comes in that makes you have to deal with this fear, you want to kill it because that would be horrible. And you get this, that's where I think destructiveness comes from is that the thing you're so afraid of it, you can't live if this thing exists. And so you want to destroy it. And uh, but it becomes generalized, right? It's not, it's yes. no longer about this particular thing, but right. about many things. Right. Because the aversion is so strong that you wind up avoiding public speaking. And that means that you don't ever even talk about public speaking. And that means you actually get nervous about talking about things in in conversations with four people. And then eventually you wind up have nobody that you wind to talk to, because if you open your mouth, you might be embarrassed. And so they tend to grow. And what they do is they make an area where you're afraid to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is, I wow. think, the cause of defenses. And it's also, I think, a much better way to understand suppression and repression, which, uh, you know, that's I mean, Freud had theories of those that were kind of crazy. But I think a very simple way to understand those is that, for example, if you if you try to deal with a problem like like embarrassment, like you try to do public speaking by you're feeling embarrassed, you say, I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to block that out. One of the things you're doing when you do that is you are saying, I can't think about that. The thought you are saying is a problem. So you're actually, in effect, censoring the thought and you're saying the feeling of embarrassment is something you can't handle. So you're, you've got a combination here where you are um, uh, making the thought a problem and you're making the feeling a problem. Now, you don't have control over the feelings you have. So if you feel embarrassment sometime, it's actually going to feel worse because you've kind of tagged it as this is a very bad thing that needs to be avoided. And so the next thing you have, you're going to want to avoid that. And then you're going to want to avoid the net. And pretty soon you're avoiding all emotions because if you actually right. pay attention to values at all, you have emotions and you can't stop the fact that sometimes they get threatened or, or whatever. And so that's what happens. And I think that with repression, what happens is that's gotten automatized and you know, repression always has defensiveness associated with it. And that's because there's something that you're trying to avoid at all costs. And that distorts the things that you want are all limited by, like this uh, criteria that they don't bring me anywhere near that terrible thing that I've got an anti-value about. And that's why people have sort of distorted motivation. Uh, I'd like to get to another positive here. Mm -hmm. uh, we, as if to set us up, 
We got a question in the chat. How do you force yourself to do something that's unpleasant? And as I do that every morning, I jump into the swimming pool, no, no matter how cold it is in the air, and no matter how cold the pool is, although it doesn't get very cold in the pool in Florida. So you have um, developed a way to think about this and process it. I'd like you to explain that. Right. So first of all, you should never force yourself to do something. Forcing your mind is, is, is wrong when other people do it to you. It's wrong when you do it to you. Forcing your mind means uh, basically shutting down part of it so that you don't have access to it. And you should never do that. That actually den that denies integration, which is a basic philosophical need that you have. So what you actually want to be able to do is you want to be able to take a step that's unpleasant. And in fact, I consider this the criteria for telling whether you have really gotten clear on the value issues. You should be able to take an unpleasant step without having to shut down anything in your mind. And you do that by getting really clear on the values and then telling yourself, this is a shorthand, I mean, I've got a lot more to say on this, but then you say like, um, yeah, I can handle this. This is like jumping in the pool. This is gonna be unpleasant. You don't deny it's gonna be unpleasant. Uh, you don't pretend it's not going to be unpleasant and just blot that out. You say, this is going to be unpleasant, and I've decided this is good for me because I really want Harry's doing it for his health. I want, this is going to help my longevity, longevity, excuse me. So that's a positive. And you know what? I'm really, I'm, first of all, I'm willing to do it. So then you can just choose to do it. Or if you are still feeling a little bit reluctant, the thing that I think is helpful to say, well, what about the status quo? Like, for example, starting work in the morning. If you uh, don't feel like starting on the thing you're supposed to, you know, top priority, say, yeah, well, this is, a, uh, this is important and you still don't feel the desire to do it. You can say, well, wait a minute. I don't want to sit around here all day doing nothing. Now it'd be terrible. And you use that little bit of, of threat-based motivation to get you to take the first step and get you over the hump. But the other thing I say is if, if you try to take that first step and you can't get over the hump, there's new information and you need to introspect that, not shut it out. You need to find out, well, why is this so hard? And the chances are this is you know, big mistakes get made by forcing yourself to do something the way you have some preconception you should do it instead of actually finding out, well, why is this so hard and why do I have so much resistance? You need to give that contrary motivation a fair hearing and you will find a much healthier, more selfish way forward that does not involve forcing yourself. Well, the fascinating thing is that you discovered that in an instant, you can turn on a dime from, oh, God, I have to, I'm supposed to, I don't want to be awful, to, hey, yeah, I want to do that. And the key is getting in touch with why you want to do it, why you've decided to do it, and why you think it's bad if you do it. So with right. the pool, uh, I, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to be invigorated. I want to yes. be invigorated. And uh, right away, I, I have a positive feeling. And I'm one of these guys who would not go into a pool below 86 degrees. That is the temperature I want the pool heated to, 86. And now I'm going in at 71 this morning. And I've done even colder, but it doesn't get too cold here, thankfully. And it's bracing. It's invigorating. There's about one or two seconds of shock 
and then it feels kind of okay or even good. Yeah. And I've noticed that in a lot of things that I think I just have to force myself. If you turn your attention to the bigger context with your values that underlie the negative motivation, your whole psychology changes in that yes. moment. Yes. And you think, yeah, I can do that. Yes. And can I clarify this? Because I think there's stuff out there in pop psychology that people confuse this with. Uh, this is not just looking at, oh, you see a glass partially full and you say, oh, well, that's half full, not half empty. This is not just looking on the bright side and saying, well, yeah, I'm going to jump in. And you know what? It's not unpleasant. It's bracing. You know, you're not just putting new words on it. What you do is you need to actually really reorient because when you've had that, like you're appalled, you're standing by the pool and you're appalled, the thing that is front and center in your mind is how cold you're going to be when you get in there and the kind of shock to your body. And right. that is what you're oriented. That's what threat-based, threat-oriented emotions are designed to get you to pay attention to a threat. And what you need to do is remember, wait a second, I don't want to be oriented to threats. That's not my primary orientation, but a threat is a threat to a value. So let me step back. Okay, what's the value that's threatened? Well, actually, ironically, in this case, it's your health, right? When the idea of the shock, it feels like it would be bad for you. And then you look at what I call the values landscape. Look at all of the possible values you could be get or could or might be threatened here. Now, in, in this case, health can also be gained by giving it a slight stressor that you know intellectually is mm -hmm. not bad for you. And that's the reason that Harry is doing this. Um, right. And it's, you know, and you and you know that it won't kill you. So like it feels like it's going to kill you, right? The, the that's yeah. you have this out of context emotion is yeah. oh, it's going to be terrible. And you need to bring in the intellectual context. You know, it's actually not going to kill me. It could be actually pretty unpleasant. And the first time he didn't know it was going to be bracing. But he uh, had the idea of, you know, well, this is something small I could do. I've got a pool here. Why don't I try this, right? And so he's, and what, and he got himself, so he was willing to try it. And then he did it. And then he found new, this generally happens yeah, when was, you pursue yeah. values, you actually oh. develop values. The value becomes stronger. He discovered he, it can be bracing. The feel yeah, of it. It's almost pleasant after the first second, even yes. by the second, maybe the third second, I'm not suffering. Right. Yes. Well, but that all came after you had made after, a yeah. conscious value oriented choice to do it. Um, can I just comment on the next question in the chat? Sure. I haven't looked at it yet, but yeah, we're the question is, yes, I know it's from the person who asked the first question. So okay. is this ideas for dissolving psychological blocks for clearer cognitive clarity? This is the key. The value orientation is the key. If in every situation, no matter what your feelings are, which is the cause, which is the experience of a psychological block is a feeling of, you know, something that's pulling you off, which you think logically makes sense. If in every such situation you get clearer on, well, what are the real values at stake? So you give contrary motivation to fair hearing, you get clear on all the values at stake, and then you make a judgment about well, what's the biggest value for me here now. That is taking a selfish step. And every time you do that, you reorganize your values, you uh, dissolve anything that's, you know, turning up a disproportionate anti-value motivation. And the action is a cognitive action of getting clearer on your values, which is the most important thing. 
So that's what I actually recommend. Good. And I think we have to stop here uh, as rich a subject as this is. And it is, boy, is it rich if you get into it. Uh, so I want to thank you, Gene, for appearing on HBTV. And I'm thank sorry you for we have me. to. Yes, I'm sorry that we have to end at this time. We're already 10 minutes late. So I'll say goodbye for now. See you next Monday.